Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, once again, I love you so very much, and it's the joy of my heart to be with you here this morning as we continue to prepare for uh, another Christmas. I'm grateful for the decorations, I'm grateful for beautiful music that is so gospel-centered, and uh, I'm grateful for His Word. And something that I felt God leading me to do this year was to take a little bit of a different approach than I typically would during a Christmas season. What I've been doing the past few weeks, if you're joining us here for the first time, is I've been walking through chapter 3 of the book of Mark, and I've been focusing in on the mission of Jesus Christ. Because when we think of Christmas, and our eyes are focused on this beautiful baby boy in a manger, I want our minds to go a step further and say, okay, why is that baby here? Why is it that God sent His Son? What is it that His Son did, and how are we supposed to respond to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I thought just for the next few weeks, we'd walk through just, a, just one chapter in a gospel, the third chapter of Mark. We've been talking about this kingdom mission of Christ. And today, as we zero in on Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, we're going to address a very specific issue that dealt with misunderstanding the person and work of Christ, a question that many of you reading the scriptures may have asked yourself, a question that I get asked as a pastor all the time. We're going to be talking about the idea of what is called the unforgivable sin. Okay, For those of you, some of you have known it as the unpardonable sin. Same, same thing. Okay, So the title of our message here today is Unveiling and Understanding the Unforgivable Sin. All right, so I want to start with a question, make you think a little bit. Here's what I want to ask you. Do you believe you could ever commit a sin so severe that even God would not forgive you? I want you to stop there for a second. Okay, I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to clear your mind from all that's happened this week and all that's going to happen later on this afternoon and press in on what I just asked you. Stay there a little while. Could you possibly commit a sin so severe that a loving and merciful God can say, even I can't forgive what you just did? Even if you've never stopped to think about it now, it's probably past your heart and mind in, at some point. And the reason I know this again is because anytime people read this, I get asked questions all the time. Pastor, do you think I am guilty of the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin? Is there something that I possibly could have said or done that God would not have forgiven? As we read the passage, we're going to hear this term, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so people automatically say, maybe I cursed the name of God one time in my life out of pure anger or frustration or pain. I, I've thrown my fist up at God. <gasps> maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin. Some of you say, well, maybe I've, I've used the name of God as a cuss word and I've taken his name in vain. Maybe that is committing the unpardonable sin. I thought about this the other day. I mean, I, I grew up in a, a household that I would not say was Christian. In fact, when I did something that I should not have done, the common response was Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And whoever was saying that was not getting ready to tell me the Christmas story. All right? It's uh, taking the beautiful name of God into a cuss word. Is that a sin? Yes. Is that the unforgivable sin? I'm thankful that it's not. So what's the unforgivable sin? What is it that that we have to stop and think about when we talk about this sin that even God himself will not forgive. Well, that's the big idea, okay? Here's what I want us to think about in one sentence as we look at Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. In one sentence, 
I want us to think about this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who warns the scribes that there's one sin so serious that it would be unforgivable for all of eternity. And if you think that you've been guilty of this sin, I'll give you a sneak peek. If you think you're guilty of it, you're not. But I still want you to zero in because we all have a lot to learn from this and it warns us the danger of how sin can blind our hearts. All right, so if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Mark. Again, we're in chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And if you do not have a Bible, please grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 997 in your Pew Bible. If you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Hear God's words to us, starting in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to stand and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and it is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let us pray. Father, again, we love you. And again, we thank you, Father, for the day that you have made. We thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you and sit at your feet as you open up your word and share it with us penetrating our hearts and our minds. Father, I just pray that you would help us to zero in on the context of this passage to truly understand what Jesus is saying, but also understand, Father, the ramifications that it has for our lives as sinners as well. Be with us at this time, Father. I pray that you would anoint these words, that all the honor and glory would be yours and yours alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. When you think about this idea of an unforgivable sin. One of the first things yeah, I think we all have to stop and, and, for just a minute and reflect on is basically what is sin and are some sins worse than others? All right, because I think there's a lot of confusion on this and every time I've taught on sin, there's one area where people often get confused. So I want to address that before we even walk through the passage. So what is sin? Okay, what is sin? I do the best I can almost every week, and I did it with the TNT boys in Awana last year. I do it with the flight kids this year. I want to get to the part where they can say, without even thinking about it, what a sin is. And so here's the definition that I always give of sin. Sin is anything that you say, think, or do that disobeys the will of God. All right? Sin is anything that you say, that you think, or that you do that disobeys the will of God. Okay, that's a sin. And in that respect, everyone in this room is guilty as charged. And the fact, I'm going to get to it in a second, you've been guilty of charged uh, uh, being a sinner because you were born into that with a sinful nature. What I mean by that is 
Adam and Eve were the, the first two human beings to live on the face of the earth, and they lived with an innocent, pure nature. But they were given the freedom to make decisions, and they chose willfully to disobey God. Sin entered into the world. The world was given a curse, and every human being born from the lineage of Adam and Eve, and all of us come from Adam and Eve, we are born with a sinful nature, and we are sinners before we ever commit our first sin. It's a part of who we are. It's our nature. We are sinners. All right, what's the impact of that? Sin separates you from God, period. All right, there, you know, a lot of us, we talk all the time about God's love. God does have an unbelievable love for all of his creation that I cannot put into words, but yet there's a sweet, deep, abiding, eternal relationship that God intended to have with human beings that he cannot have until our sin is taken care of, until the penalty of that sin is reconciled. Every human being who has ever lived is born with a sinful nature that separates them from the presence of God. That's the danger and the power of sin. Now let's talk about forgiveness. Again, I talk about this all the time. The, the holiness and the love of God. The holiness demands that all of our sins be forgiven. The love of God says he wants to offer us that forgiveness. And the way in which he has decided to do that is by sending his son. The very reason why we celebrate Christmas, he himself, God became a human being and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. He became one of us and lived and was tempted like us, yet without sin. He lived perfectly. He died sacrificially. He rose supernaturally and he ascended heavenly, making a way from death to life that whoever would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ would have their sins forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. That's the good news. Maybe you need a good news this morning. There's your good news. And it never gets old. That's the beauty and the forgiveness of sin. But then we come across a passage like this that good Christians often get really confused about. You hear Jesus Christ actually mention that there are some sins, in particular one sin, that will not be forgiven for all of eternity. And that says, well, wait a second, are there different degrees of sin? And the answer is yes. Okay? And the reason people get confused in this is there's one passage in the scriptures that is often misunderstood. That is James chapter 2, verse 10 that we went through this summer. And James 2.10 says, if you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So sin is all equal in that even the smallest sin makes you so guilty you could not be with God in heaven forever. But that does not mean that every sin is equal in its weight. All right? You know, the Bible says that if I've if I have even a lustful thought for another woman, I've already committed adultery in my heart. All right, so even that lust is a sin. But I would say it's worse to actually commit the physical act of adultery than it is to have it in your heart. Both of them are sin, but there is one that's greater than another. Yet God says that all sins could be forgiven if we give our life to Jesus. So then the question is, if all sins separate us from God, but yet God is willing to forgive all sins great and small, how can there be one sin that God himself would not forgive? And that puts us right in the passage here of Mark chapter 3. And I know you're anxious to see here the answer to this question. And I'm going to walk through this passage in three stages. In the first stage, we're going to kind of hit it hard right out of the chute. Okay, so let's walk through this. The first stage I want to look at, let's look at number one, the conditions of the unforgivable sin. Look just at one verse. Keep your Bible open. Verse 22 of Mark 3. 
Here's what it says. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, meaning Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. That one passage tells us the unforgivable sin. So let's look at the conditions, okay? First of all, it's mentioned that there are scribes. Who are scribes? Well, in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, you hear this term scribe and Pharisee, and they're interchangeable, all right? A scribe basically worked alongside a Pharisee, and the scribes were the ones who transcribed, hence the word, the words of the Hebrew Torah onto scrolls and onto parchment to make copies of the Old Testament and also to be a reference point of the Old Testament for the Pharisees. So they were walking, talking commentaries. If you wanted to know the meaning of the law, you went to the specialists. And the specialists were the scribes and the Pharisees. And throughout the Gospels, we see over and over when Jesus is being condemned for doing good things, when he's being condemned for giving sight to the blind, when he's being condemned for giving hearing to the deaf, when he's condemned for giving uh, health to the sick, it's the scribes and the Pharisees who were supposed to be the closest to God because they knew the word of God better than anyone else. It's the Pharisees who call out against him. And what happens in this particular passage? What are they calling out against him? They are saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul is the prince of demons. All right. He's the president of the United States of Satan. He is the, the head. All right. He's the one who basically he's calling out Jesus and he's saying that the work that you're doing in the power of God is actually coming from the power of Satan. And there you have the unforgivable sin. All right. There you have the unforgivable sin when you take the work of God and you attribute it to the work of Satan. Now, let me give you a full definition here. I've read a lot of commentaries. I've prayed over this. The single best definition that I could give for the unpardonable sin, and ironically, I found it from one of my former professors, the president of the seminary that I've been attending. Dr. Aiken has a fantastic commentary on the book of Mark. This is the best definition I've ever heard of the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. Here's what he says. The unpardonable sin is knowingly, willingly, and persistently attributing to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. I'll read it one more time and I'll talk about what it means. The unpardonable sin is knowingly, willingly, and persistently attributing to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. Now, here's some good news and a warning. The good news is, is if you're a Christian, you cannot commit the unforgivable sin. It's impossible. Because if you became a Christian, you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, you never gave Satan credit for what Jesus did. Also, you have to understand, this is a specific context. The scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw God as a human being do miracles. And they said, the miracles that you do, Jesus, they come from Satan. They don't come from God. Now, no one in this room, I think, would dare say they have seen Jesus in the flesh. All right. So we have not seen Jesus come as a human being right in front of our faces and do miracles and then say to him to his face that actually you are Satan and you're doing the works of Satan. So in that context, 
There's no one in here who could be guilty of the unforgivable sin because you were not here when Jesus was in the flesh. But here's the warning. The unforgivable sin still shows us the power of how sin can blind us. And sin can blind you in such a way that if you do not bow your knee and confess with your tongue that Christ is Lord, when you die, your sins will not be forgiven because much like the scribes, you have rejected the work of Christ. So this has a word for us. Even if I'm, I'm giving everyone a breath of fresh air that no one in this room has committed the unforgivable sin, you may commit sins that are one day unforgivable because your time to experience that grace has expired. And we're going to talk about that more as we walk through this text. So that's the conditions of the unforgivable sin. Let's move on to the second stage. Number two, let's look at the corruption of the unforgivable sin. Verses 23 through 27 say this. And he, meaning Jesus, called to them, meaning the scribes, to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. All right, so Jesus is using logic to show them how the sin has blinded them in such a way that they have been illogical in everything they're saying. And Jesus does it in two ways. The first way is basically he talks about how a divided kingdom can't stand. And let me make it really simple. Jesus is looking at them and saying, you're saying I'm a demon. And you're saying I'm a demon because I'm going and casting out other demons. Well, if I'm a demon and the other demons are on my team and I spend all my day stopping them from the work that they're doing, how is it that we're still a team? All right, a team that's against itself cannot stand. And we know this. Organizations where there's, there's strife at the top, they don't last. Churches where there's disunity, they can't stand. Families, marriages, when one is against another, that does not build up, that tears down. And so Jesus is saying, how could Satan possibly be casting out demons and yet the power of Satan is growing? If I'm stopping the work that Satan does, there's no way I could be working for Satan because I would not be building him up. Instead, I'm tearing him down. And there's a second thing that Jesus does. He speaks in parables. I understand. I think some of you maybe have had a Sunday school lesson about this recently. All right. When Jesus speaks in parables, the one word I want us to remember is the word judgment because he is judging them by speaking to them in such a way that they don't fully understand. And what he's talking about is the strong man argument. All right, so here's basically what he's saying in the strong man argument, okay? Verse 27 says this, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What does that mean? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the answer, okay? Before the test is over, I'm gonna give you the answers right now. So get out your number two pencil and your scantrons. I don't think anybody uses those anymore. I'm going to give you the answers, okay? The strong man is Satan. The house is a, the kingdom of this world that's divided by sin. The goods are the helpless souls that are being held by Satan in bondage through demon possession. 
and Jesus is the one who's coming to bind the strong man and plunder the house by releasing the people from this bondage. He's coming to give them forgiveness for their sins. He's coming to give them healing from their disease. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving hearing to the deaf. He's causing the waves to die down and the glory of God to rise up. He's walked into the strong man's house and says, you've had power over this kingdom for too long. I'm coming to establish a new kingdom. I'm going to plunder you and I'm going to take all that you've held captive and I'm going to set them free. That's what Jesus is telling them he's doing through this parable. But the scribes are so blind by their sin, they cannot see it. And it's making them angrier and angrier and angrier. But this is what I want to say. Why would this be the unforgivable sin to say that the works of Christ are actually the works of Satan? Because it's the highest possible level of human depravity. Let me tell you what that word depravity means. Depravity means that sin has corrupted you in such a way that you look at what is good and call it bad. Now, what do I mean by that? Listen to the difference between Satan and Christ. Satan is darkness, but Christ brings light. Satan is sin, but Christ is sinless. Satan enslaves, but Christ frees. Satan condemns, but Christ forgives. Satan deceives, but Christ brings truth. Satan kills, but Christ gives new life. Now, how could you look at darkness and call it light? Even worse, how could you look at light and call it darkness? If there was a miracle that took place in this church right now, let's say someone in this room had cancer and somebody walked through the doors here and put a hand on them and prayed a prayer and their cancer was released or someone in this room was facing some type of sickness or disease and they were immediately healed. If you were to look at that and say, man, Satan's really doing work in this house today, that would reveal your heart and your blindness that is caused by sin. And when you look at Jesus Christ and call him Satan, there's nowhere else to go. There's no other life jacket. There's no other rescue boat coming. Jesus is your last line of defense. You don't go to Jesus, you got nothing left. And we're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. So now we've seen the conditions of the unforgivable sin. We've seen the corruption of the unforgivable sin. Number three, the final stage, let's look at verses 28 through 30 at the condemnation of the unforgivable sin. All right, and verses 28 through 30 says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Here's basically what's happening. If you remember, all right, if any of you have read the Gospels and you remember this story that we see throughout the Gospels where Jesus Christ is baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, all right, we see uh, it says that the Holy Spirit descended on Christ like a dove. That basically was a physical symbol of a spiritual reality where Jesus was receiving the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that God the Father had called him to do. So everything that Jesus did was in the power of the Holy Spirit. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit was to look at all that Jesus did and say, you didn't do that, Satan did. Again, 
the worst possible thing a human being in the blindness of their sin could ever do. I'm going to boil all this down, and I, I just I prayed through this. I looked through this, and in my own words, here's, here's kind of what I want to say as we kind of draw this to a close and get ready to sum it up here in a minute. I would say the unforgivable sin is when someone who has had a firsthand eyewitness of the miraculous works of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who fully understands who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, and why he was doing what he did, and not only willfully rejected the works of Christ and the grace offered by Christ, but who declares the work of Christ, the work of Satan, that person has committed a sin that will never be forgiven for all of eternity. Now, because I said earlier, none of you in this room are guilty of that sin. Where, where's the application for us? Well, let's look at, as we sum it up, let's take a look. To sum it all up, I'd say this. The account of the unforgivable sin reminds us of two important things. Number one, the seriousness of all sin. And when I mean seriousness, what I say is this. Sin will harden your heart and it will blind you to look at what is right and say that it is wrong. Or for us, most likely, to look at what is wrong and say that it is right. You may say, well, I'm good. I, don't, I didn't commit the unforgivable sin. No, but you may be committing sin right now that you actually think God is okay with because it's blinded you like it blinded the scribes. What do I mean by that? Well, we live in a world that says abortion is an acceptable form of birth control. That's blindness. We live in a world that says good people don't need to be forgiven. Because we judge goodness by the standards of the world instead of the standards of God. That's blindness. Every single person, before they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they have to come to grips with the fact that their sin is, makes them guilty and they're not worthy of the kingdom of heaven apart from Jesus. Now, none of us are born believing that. If you were to take a straw poll of non-Christians and who thought they were going to go to hell... The response to what you would get is, I'm not going to hell. I'm a good person. I help people. I love people. I give to this organization. I do this and I do that. But God will not judge you by the standards of the world. He will judge you by the standards of God. And the standards of God are perfection. God doesn't have a sinless thought. He never spoke a sinless word. He's never had a sinless deed. And if you're not perfect, in every way, you will not see the kingdom of God unless your sins are forgiven by someone who is perfect, and that person is Jesus. There's other sins. I mean, we could go through it. I think uh, more so than anything else, sexual immorality is a sin that the world does not condemn, but that the Bible does, and that we say is okay because we're blinded by sin. If you have sexual relations outside the bed of marriage for any reason at any time, you are living in sin. And if you think it's okay, sin has blinded you. If you cohabitate, if you're a woman who lives with a man who is not your husband for any reason, even if you're not having intercourse, you're living in sin and sin has blinded you. That's how serious it is. And the world has gotten so relaxed about this that when anybody in ministry or any Christian who lovingly comes alongside someone and says, you need to repent of this, then they're being judgmental. No, they're saying you have sin that is blinding you to the truth and you need to repent or you will stand before God with an excuse that will not hold up. Period. 
Now here's the good news. For all the sins I just listed, they're still forgivable because God is good. And he loves you more than I could possibly put into words. And if you're willing to repent, which means turn away and not go back to that sin, seek his forgiveness and live for him, you will receive that forgiveness. There's good news. That baby in a manger is saying God loves you. He wants to be among you. He wants to earn the salvation that you could not earn by living the life you could not live. And if you give your life to Jesus, you'll receive that forgiveness. That's the good news. But what's the second part of this? The second part, I would say number two, the eternal judgment on anyone who rejects the saving work of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to say this. I know this is not a politically correct statement for this world, but I'm just going to say it. Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God that lasts for all of eternity. That's not a fun statement. That is not a politically correct statement. What my friends and and colleagues that I've experienced over the years who have other faiths would say, how narrow-minded are you, Bo? Don't you know how these these good Muslims or these good Buddhists or these good this or these good that, how, how could you condemn their religion? I'm not condemning their religion. They're all capable of doing good moral deeds. But the fact of the matter is this. If Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God and he went to such a degree to sacrifice his own son for your salvation, then guess what? If you reject Jesus, there's nothing left. There's no lifeboat coming. All right. If you reject, if you reject the Life Star helicopter and say, "No, I'm gonna wait for something else to come," there's not another chopper on the way. All right. That's that's basically it. And so the the fact of the matter is this: we need to feel the weight of that sin because our sin blinds us like it blinded the scribes. But we also need to know this: as long as you still have oxygen in your lungs, and you understand that sin has separated you from God and you're willing to confess that and give your life to Jesus, you're still a candidate for grace. That's what I celebrate at Christmas. The grace of God. When I think of that baby in a manger in a dark Bethlehem night, and that star overneath, over top of that manger that is so bright the shepherds could see it in a dark field, what I say is God is bringing light into the world, and he's bringing light into my dark world. Because when Jesus entered my heart at 27, the world would not have said, Bo, you live in darkness. I was a tax-paying citizen who never got into legal trouble, never had any addictions, never... But you know what? I was living in darkness because I didn't know God. If there's any of you in this room, here's what I want to say, that that has never fully given your life to Jesus. You may not realize it because the sin has blinded you, but you're living in darkness. You know Regardless of what other people know of your life, you know when the door's closed, the thoughts that go through your mind or the words that come out of your mouth or even the actions that you commit, you know Jesus has nothing to do with them. You know that your life doesn't belong to him. What I'm saying to you is this. He's calling out to you. Are you listening? He wants to forgive you. Will you repent? He wants to give you all the love, grace, and mercy that you could possibly handle. Are you willing to surrender it all to the Lord Jesus? I want you to think about that as we pray. Father, sin is so serious. 
We're all guilty of it, Father, and it's manifested itself in ugly ways in everyone's life in this room. Father, I pray that you help us, all of us in this room, to have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and give us vision where the sin has blinded us to show us areas in our life, Father, that do not honor you. Help us that we can repent. Help us that we can live. Help us that we can honor you as we enter into a Christmas season, honor the Christ child who eventually lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death, rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father that our sins would be forgiven. Father, let us honor you this Christmas by giving our life to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.